Welcome to Statewide Reports and Conversations from in and around Illinois. I'm Sean Crawford. Ahead, we'll talk tornadoes. Illinois topped the nation in the number of tornadoes in 2023. We'll hear what the state climatologist has to say. We'll take you to a competition involving middle school students planning the cities of the future. Also on the way, students heading to college are filling out their financial aid forms. We'll have some tips. Also, we'll talk with the mayor, now on the national board of Amtrak, the passenger rail service. And we'll learn how one town became a dementia-friendly city. Are the Chicago White Sox considering a new stadium in that city? And we'll learn more about home-based daycare workers who want more from the state. Those stories and more coming up on Statewide. This is Statewide. I'm Sean Crawford. Well, the snow, cold, and wintry weather has been on our minds lately, but Illinois had more tornadoes than any other state last year, and they can happen in any month. The National Weather Service confirmed 120 Illinois tornadoes in 2023. The Illinois state climatologist Trent Ford talked about this with Melba Laura in Chicago. So 120 tornadoes, that's a lot of tornadoes. Um, Illinois has just seen more tornadoes than one other year that's on record. Is there an explanation for why last year was so active? Um, you know, there's not there's not one particular reason to say this is why we were so active last year. Um, you know, we were coming out of a La Nina winter and La Nina springs where we're coming out of a La Nina year and going to the spring. They can be a bit more active as far as the total number of tornadoes in parts of the Mid-South up to the Midwest where we're at. Um, but that's just one kind of potential influence. Um, we were very, very mild and in some cases warm in January, February, and even part of March. And and when we look at the monthly distribution of tornadoes uh, compared to average, we were way above average January, February, March. And then for the rest of the year, we were either near to below average. So some of that just persistent, warm, relatively humid air that that kept affecting this region early in the year played an important role in, in how often we had our severe weather in those tornadoes too. Trent, why did Illinois see more tornadoes than other parts of the country? I mean, imagine some of that is just chance, but are there aspects of our climate or the geography that make Illinois more susceptible? From last year, it, it, it wasn't anything that had changed versus other years. But when we look at kind of climatologically over many, many years, tornadoes happen almost everywhere on Earth. Uh, but sort of the hot spot, the hottest spot, I suppose, uh, on Earth is really the central U.S. And, and, and the reason for that is from the Rockies down to the Mississippi Valley, we have sloping terrain. We have systems that are tracking from west to east that can bring us the different clashes of air masses. And we have the consistent flow of moist uh, sorry, I know a lot of people don't like the word moist, so I'll use the term humid, warm air flowing off the Gulf of Mexico that can supply the instability to create tornadoes. All of those ingredients really maximize together in the central U.S. Trent, maybe you could do a little myth busting for us. The National Weather Service said in that report that every county in the Chicago region had at least one tornado last year. And there's this pervasive belief among people that live in this area that it's impossible for a tornado to hit the city of Chicago proper. Now, we've debunked this myth before, but one more time probably can't hurt. 
No, it, it, you can scream it from the top of whatever the highest hill in Illinois is that there's nothing protecting the city of Chicago from a tornado. The lake, the urban heat island, the river, the Sears Tower, whatever, uh, whatever the, the myth is, there's nothing protecting it there. So what that means is if you live in the loop, if you live in Bronzeville, if you live in River North, it doesn't matter. You should be ready for tornadoes and severe weather all year round. Dr. Trent Ford is the Illinois State Climatologist. We've been hearing about the high number of tornadoes in Illinois last year. Trent's always great to talk to you. Hey, Melba, likewise, always great to talk. The central Illinois town of Washington is now officially a dementia-friendly city. What does that mean? Colin Shope tells us more. He spoke with the Washington mayor, Gary Manier. Dementia-friendly America, uh, who actually designates that. and we, we became the 30th city in Illinois to get that distinction. And uh, it's a process you have to go through. There's some training. Uh, it took about 10 months, I guess, maybe nine, nine months to, to get it to fruition. But uh, it's, you know, I think all of us have been touched with family members, loved ones with uh, dementia, uh, Alzheimer's. So uh, it's just an opportunity for us to remind people that we, we're here to help. And, and ab- this will absolutely, uh, you know, police, fire, uh, our businesses, uh, We'll try to get everybody to take that training to recognize those that have dementia. Um, how did this process sort of start? How did the city become interested in receiving this designation? Well, actually, Terry Hildegon, who used to serve on the city council uh, back, uh, actually, he, he left the day I was seated in 2001, uh, May of 2001. But Terry uh, uh, just felt compelled to, to get this going, and he kind of led the charge and brought the first meeting together at uh, Crossroads Methodist Church and had a lot of the ministers and uh, fire and police personnel uh, there at that first meeting. And uh, it was off and running, but Terry had a passion to to make sure that uh, happened and we became a a dementia-friendly community. So have you been a part of or observed some of this training yourself? I have. I've been to uh, not all the meetings, but uh, they met once a month and I tried to make most of them. And uh, it was just a matter of fact of trying to get enough information from the for the fire and police department, especially to kind of lead the charge uh, and get that training established uh, because sometimes first responders are the first ones to recognize someone with dementia, either either the person having the situation that the police or fire are there or the loved one that's with them. So, uh, And we're hoping that, you know, grocery stores and gas stations and all the others will end up putting stickers in their windows to designate uh, that they've had the training and can recognize, uh, you know, there's been stories of people uh, going to banks and pulling out large sums of money. Uh, and, and the person's never done that before, and the teller's going to recognize that. And uh, if they've had the training, they'll understand that maybe it's someone that is suffering from dementia. So it's just, you know, trying to make our community uh, more aware of what's going on around us and the people that could be struggling. And, you know, there's also uh, an opportunity to purchase some, uh, uh, like, devices, GIS systems that they can put on a loved one that if they walk away that uh, we can track them and, and find them very quickly. Could you give an example of a component or two of what people learn at these trainings that you've seen? I think just able to recognize those that are maybe uh, disconnected with what they're trying to get across. Or one person uh, described a, a loved one coming out of a, a store, and I don't know if it was Menards or uh, Walmart or a bigger store, and uh, couldn't find their car. And uh, so just little things like that, if you can recognize that and help people to, to get straightened around and get going in the right direction, is uh, it's, it's, it's huge. So you mentioned that uh, businesses that go through this can have a sticker in their window uh, to kind of designate themselves as part of this project. Uh, What specifically do they have to do to get that sticker? 
It's just an online training that they do, and it's just a, a matter of how to recognize someone that that may be uh, suffering from from this uh, uh, awful disease that they have. And uh, you know, it's a we, we want to help them in every way we can. And if it's just a matter of a, a simple bank withdrawal or uh, buying something at one of our stores on the square, the, the people can recognize it. It'd be very helpful. And I think the loved ones that you know can't be with them 24/7, especially the early onset uh, dementia patients it's uh, really tough and then there's also some training that they'll have with for the uh, care caretakers the, those that are taking care of loved ones that have it you've surely touched on some of the reasons as we've been talking here but why is it important for you as mayor to be the head of a community that you know is taking something like this into account well, one, I, uh, my mother-in-law suffered with it and lived with us for seven years, and uh, so I, I know exactly the the progress that that goes through and uh, the different stages that uh, happen during dementia uh, disease. And uh, we have several loved ones in the community that uh, we know of uh, very personally, uh, good friends of ours, uh, myself and my wife, and uh, uh, that are suffering with it today. And uh, we thought it was just important to to kind of lead to help lead the charge uh, from a city standpoint. And when Terry Hildegon came to me, I, I really felt uh, compelled to uh, make sure we got it done. And, and they told us it would take a year, over a year. And I said, not Washington. We wanted to, we wanted to do it a little faster than that, which we did. So we're proud of that. And that's Washington Mayor Gary Manier. He says of the 20 other communities designated dementia-friendly in Illinois, none are within a six-county radius of his town. A memoirist who traced his father's journey across Europe during the Holocaust wrote a book about the effort. St. Louis poet Jason Sommers says his memoir, known as Schmoyle's Bridge, is less about the Holocaust and more about the relationship between fathers and sons and the nature of truth. Before an upcoming appearance in Normal this weekend, he spoke with Lindsay Jones. I didn't expect to be writing a book and wouldn't have written the book had it not been for an editor friend who, you know, had a a need for nonfiction books. And I proposed uh, something to him and he said, you know, I'd be interested. I know your poems and I know the stories in your poems. Do you have anything that would tie them together in any way? And I said, well, no. Oh yeah. <laughs> we went on this trip, my father and I, to visit the places that he'd been interned and the place of his birth. And we tried to find the bridge from which his brother uh, tried to escape uh, from a an Auschwitz-bound tra train transport. And there was silence on the other end of the phone line, and he said, write me a chapter. The book that you authored and that you're discussing here in Bloomington Normal later this month is is about a physical trip to those places in Europe where your father had been, where your extended family had been during the wartime, during the Holocaust. But I noticed you kind of balk at that being the only characterization of that book. Can you say more about what that book is and what it means part of the importance if the book has importance it's also covering the hungarian holocaust we forget um, hungary was an ally of germany and they were they passed anti-jewish uh, legislation at the same time in the 20s that the germans did and um they were enthusiastic in their assistance with the de deportation of, of of jews even before the germans moved in to actually take control of, of Hungary. I think that's little known, really, because Auschwitz takes up all the, all the space in, in a way. Uh, it has become a kind of shorthand for it, but there was lots that happened outside of Auschwitz. So there's that some element, but really the book isn't about the Holocaust chiefly. It's about fathers and sons, a father and a son 
against the back, background of difficult history, you know, that which, of course, casts a shadow uh, on and, and between uh, the, the relationship. One thing I was particularly taken by is your writing of what it means to be the child of a parent who has experienced great trauma. So that story, that trauma is kind of always looming over you. Whether you know the details or whether you do not, that doesn't change the fact that when you are young, you feel diminished next to it. And it's also not lost on me that you took that trip in your 50s. Um, Right. Is that when you felt ready for it? Uh, You know, yes, there was some element of being ready for it, a man in my own right. Mm -hmm. Um, I had published some books. Um, I had won some awards. I felt, I felt able for it. The, the trip that led to Schmoyles Bridge was designed for something more personal. I didn't think of it as uh, instrumental in, in any other project, but it, it, was to, it was to bridge a gap between my father and myself and to, to witness uh, at, at some remove the events of his life and to, to come closer to him. To what extent <laughs> do you feel that that worked? I, I do feel that it, it worked. I mean, there were some very dramatic moments. There were moments where I saw my father's, the rawness of my father's injuries. His, his, um, his brother, the loss of his brother was the, the deepest loss. I mean, there were over 60 family members that were murdered, but his brother was the one for him and so when we at my insistence tried to commemorate his brother i felt both that i was helping him lay a ghost in a way and and uh, come to peace with something but i also felt at least afterwards that i had i had probed the, the wound a little bit so that i could see what was what was genuine what was less practiced after a while my father he talked about the Holocaust. He did appearances, you know, and 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 spoke about it. He was National Teacher of the Year. I mean, his his America's success stories is incredible, but it layered practice at speaking that seemed to distance him from the events. And and I, you know, I had a maybe it's a writer's need, maybe it's a a bad child's desire for. Uh, to get closer to authenticity. It's interesting because you want to get it right, but what is right? How do you convey what is actual truth? Because there are so many things about that, right? There's the way that it's presented. That's its own kind of thing. There's the actual facts. And then there's the way that you hear it as it's presented to you. There's so many things that converge into making a memory or truth. And I feel like you explore that. And that's why the memoir is not necessarily structured like some more typical memoirs are. Like there's there's all kinds of movement. Yes, I think that's right. Um, I think that's right. There there's some interrogation of the whole process. Um, But there's a real effort on my part with maps and other uh other memoirs and and you know other testimony to make sure that i was as right as i could be and and with my father sometimes he would witness an event there's a a hanging that he witnesses um as he's moving back into budapest after escaping from the russian army and i was able to 
find out who was being hung and correct his impression that it was vigilante justice because it wasn't there was a committee and and it was not very well done as in as executions go but he was wrong about what was happening i was able to tell him that um which gave me a little authority in in all these stories which i think i needed too mm-hmm. um that i had something to contribute did you have family members alive at the time of publication that were able to respond to the book that you put out? Yes, I have a, um, some some cousins. There were people in my family who weren't delighted at the portraiture sometimes. Um, and that's been a hi- history of my, there's personal portraiture in, in, in my poems and that <laughs> people don't like. But the truth as I saw it, um, and I don't think I've performed character assassination on on anybody. But um, there was also a sense, especially um, my Aunt Lilia, who d- didn't speak until a certain point, and then did, um, that you were telling tales out of school. You were, this was family business, and why were you talking about this? There's always the risk. I mean, if you're trying to tell the truth in as, as whole a version of the truth, sometimes you know, people are going to see it differently. Jason Sommer, who wrote a memoir about tracing his father's journey across Europe during the Holocaust. It's called Schmoyle's Bridge. He spoke with Lindsay Jones. Just ahead, a possible glimpse at the city of the future. That and more to come on Statewide. We're back on Statewide. I'm Sean Crawford. On the way, could the Chicago White Sox be looking to play in a new location? We'll have that story. But first, engineers all over the world are working on how to build a sustainable city of the future that solves current and future problems while meeting the needs of a modern society. Jonathan All reports from Missouri on a competition that featured middle school students presenting their ideas to a panel of judges. 12-year-old Sebastian Turley says the city of the future will need a diversity of power sources. The 7th grader from St. Clair Junior High and his teammates envision using hydroelectric power and geothermal energy to power De Grüne Stadt, German for the Green City. We have the Isar River flowing near our city, and we also have geothermal hotspots right underneath our city, so we can use those energy sources and make an interconnected power grid and connect everything together into one electricity source. This model city and the essay and presentation that goes along with it are part of the Future City Competition. It's an annual nationwide event that challenges 6th through 8th graders to design the city of the future. This year's challenge was to design a 100% electrically powered city with energy generated from sources that keep their citizens and the environment healthy and safe. The team from Sullivan Middle School opted for solar power in their city, Aquila. 7th grader Savannah Embry says they envisioned a collection of mirrors that would all focus the sun's rays at the top of a structure they call the solar power tower. Once the sun hits the mirrors and goes up and heats up the solar power tower, the steam goes to the base, which spins a turbine connecting to a generator, which flows throughout the city. These students from around the state are putting the final touches on their 3D models that are about five feet wide and three feet deep. And they're practicing their presentations and preparing to answer questions from judges from Missouri University of Science and Technology and Ameren. Joel Birkin is the chair of the Civil, Architectural, and Environmental Engineering Department at Missouri S&T 
and one of the judges. I think it's really key for them to look at how they're learning now for math and science and chemistry and biology and some properties and physics can all be integrated into something that is real and, and that really is implemented on a citywide scale or a country scale. More than the science, the project also teaches students about teamwork. 13-year-old Isa Zurovec is on a team of homeschooled kids in Rala. She says that's the biggest thing she's taking out of the experience. It definitely teaches you how to work with people because no matter what you're doing, you always, you're always working with people. So I think that's what helped me. It's helping me communicate and be able to make sure everybody's on the same page about everything. Each state has a competition like this one, with the winning team advancing onto a national contest next month in Washington, D.C. Missouri will be represented by the team from St. Clair Junior High. And if I can bring down our first place Missouri Future City Com Competition winners, Die Grüne Stadt. The team is already thinking about upgrades and improvements they will make to their city before heading to nationals. But seventh grader Carson Flora is still taking time to let it all soak in. I am amazed that we even got this opportunity to just go in and do stuff and we won. It's so exciting. I, I can't put it into words. I can't believe we're going to D.C. While the focus may be on the next month, the Future City competition is in for a possible expansion next year. Missouri is one of 10 states that will pilot a version of the contest for high school students. In Rolla, I'm Jonathan All. At least 21 states are considering legislation to block foreign companies and individuals from purchasing farmland. That includes Illinois, Missouri, and several other Midwestern states. Kate Grumke has more. Many of the proposals state lawmakers will consider target countries that are considered foreign adversaries, like China. But Chinese companies own a relatively small amount of U.S. agricultural land, says David Ortega, a food economist at Michigan State University. We're looking at, you know, countries like Luxembourg, Portugal, entities from those countries own significantly more land than entities uh, from China. Canadian individuals and companies are actually the largest foreign agricultural landowners, according to the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Much of that is forest land for timber. For Harvest Public Media, I'm Kate Grumke. For the third time in five years, the U.S. will have imported more agricultural products than it exported. It's what economists call a deficit. It sits north of $20 billion through 2023. Agriculture used to be a bright spot for American trade. Is that changing? Will Bauer reports. 40 miles southeast of St. Louis, farmer Chris Otten has just swung open the door at the top of his 35-foot grain bin. On this windy December afternoon, Otten is checking his corn to make sure it hasn't spoiled. He does so by sticking his arm into the grain. You take your hand. If you can go in that deep, your grain's fine. If it's really getting bad, you'll get this deep and that's as far as you go. This process is an important one before Otten takes his grain to the Mississippi River in a few days. There he'll sell his thousands of bushels of corn, soybeans, and wheat to agricultural giants Bungie and Cargill. Those two will load the grain onto barges to be shipped. If that grain ends up abroad, it's what we call an export. But this year, agricultural imports are outpacing exports by large margins. That's concerning to Otten, who'd like the U.S. to sell more than it buys. That is ideal for us to get back to where we're exporting as much as we possibly can. I don't know if that'll ever happen, 
last calendar year was a record year for ag exports. At this time in 2022, exports totaled more than $160 billion. According to data from the U.S. Department of Agriculture, this year it's $143 billion. Otten says getting back to a surplus where exports outnumber imports should be a top priority for the White House. The Office of the U.S. Trade Representative is the main federal agency that advocates for American products on behalf of the administration. In Biden's first two years in office, exports reached record levels. Chief Agricultural Negotiator Doug McCaleb says overall numbers this year can be a little misleading. The U.S. is very much still a breadbasket to the world. We're growing things and success, successfully exporting them around the globe. Uh, so there's certainly a lot more to it than what might meet the eye initially. Breaking it down, there are some basic economic factors at play here. University of Illinois professor Bill Ridley says one of the biggest factors to this deficit is a simple one, more imports. And of course, the more you import, holding your exports mostly mostly constant, that's going to shrink your, your trade surplus or create a trade deficit. In other words, Americans are buying more. For example, not all fruit and vegetables are grown here year-round. Demand for those foods continues to grow, so the U.S. is importing more to keep up. The next factor, economists say, is that Americans have more purchasing power right now. A strong American dollar plays a part, says Tanner Emke, an economist at CoBank. A strong dollar makes our exports non-competitive overseas, and it makes imports more competitive. Our stronger dollar gives us more purchasing power, and so therefore we can afford to bring in more imports. A third piece to this puzzle, Emke says, is that demand for renewable diesel is growing, and it uses a lot of soybean oil. So more soybeans stay in the U.S. rather than being sold overseas. In turn, the U.S. is buying more canola oil from Canada to replace it. So imports rising, strong American dollar, and keeping soybeans at home are some of the biggest factors in the trade deficit. But does it matter? Ridley with the University of Illinois says trade deficits, particularly in one sector, don't necessarily scare most economists. He illustrates his point with the same example he uses for his students. You know, I, I have a trade deficit with the grocery store. It's that I go there every week and I spend money and they never spend money on me in return. Like I buy a lot from them, but they don't, you know, they don't buy any of my stuff. On the face of it, that's fine because I sell stuff to other places. You know, I, I sell my, my own products and services, like teaching through the university. Next fiscal year, the USDA is projecting another deficit, this one to the tune of $30 billion. But with different economic conditions, the U.S. agricultural sector may return to a surplus at some point. Economists say if and when are tough questions to answer, though. I'm Will Bauer. Sources say the Chicago White Sox are in serious talks about moving to the city's South Loop area. The team is in discussions about building a new ballpark in a location known as the 78. Tim Novak is an investigative reporter for the Chicago Sun-Times, and he spoke with Mel Ballara. So tell us more about where this new ballpark could be if it gets built. Well, the site is uh, in the South Loop. It's uh, south of Roosevelt Road between Clark Street and the river. It's 62 acres, and, and if you look at the aerial photos of this site, which is really kind of the only way you can see it, it, this should not be an empty site. This is, this is too valuable of real estate. Whether, whatever you put there, this is so close, you could walk to the loop from this site. Um, if you're starting at Madison, and by the way, this site is still south of Madison, so they would still be your south side ball club. This site is, is a pretty good location for a project like this. 
And this isn't the first time that the White Sox chairman, Jerry Reinsdorf, has been eyeing a move away from the guaranteed rate field, the current ballpark for the Sox. What's not working at the current site? Why do they want to move? Well, their lease is up, and I think that uh, in this day and age, um, the stadium is sort of antiquated. It's kind of big. It's 30 years old. Um, this stadium would apparently be smaller, uh, we've heard, which in the White Sox case might make it not seem so empty because there won't be as many seats. Well, if the team does build a new stadium, this is probably the billion-dollar question, who's going to pay for it? Um, it, we have no idea how it will be financed, but I don't know that there's a stadium really anywhere in the country uh, that doesn't include some sort of public funding, whether it's to build roads or whether it's to build uh, some sort of infrastructure, relocate sewers or whatnot. Um, I mean, right now, um, the taxpayers we've paid to rehabilitate Soldier Field, um, and if the Bears move before their lease is up, we'll be stuck with uh, a, a renovation bill and no tenant. You know, in reading some social media posts after your story was online, there's some genuine anger from White Sox fans who feel like this is not the greatest team in the world. They don't want taxpayer money being used for a team that's not so great. How is this going to fly with White Sox fans that are a little disgruntled? Um People are just disgruntled in general. It doesn't matter whether who they cheer for. I, I think you'd have to look at this more of sort of like an economic development project. There, there's more areas around there for um, entertainment, uh, restaurants. You go to Sox Park, and, and I go frequently. There's really nothing to do once you get there. You have to leave. Um, it's just sort of like a, a, a baseball stadium in the middle of a sea of parking lots. So um, this could enhance the fan base. You know, a lot of these stadiums that are being built now, they're, they're like entertainment districts. Tim Novak is an investigative reporter for the Chicago Sun-Times. We've been speaking about the possibility of a new ballpark and a new location for the White Sox. Tim, thanks for coming in. Thank you. Illinois Secretary of State is behind an effort to ban certain food additives from products sold here. Alexei Janulius says things like red dye number three and potassium bromate found in some candy and junk food have been linked to poor health. The new Food Safety Act would ban those and three other additives, but Janulius says this would not ban food. It will, however, encourage food manufacturers to update recipes using safer, alternative ingredients that are already widely available. Janulius says he's involved in part because he runs the state's organ tissue donation registry, which needs more healthy organs. The Illinois Manufacturers Association opposes what they call a well-intentioned idea, saying it would set a, quote, dangerous precedent by usurping the role of the FDA. Illinois has a program that provides free or affordable child care to low-income families, including at-home-based daycares. More than 15,000 of those providers are currently in contract negotiations with the state. They're bargaining over pay and retirement as more workers leave the field because of low wages and lack of benefits. Esther Yoonji Kang takes a look at what advocates call the workforce behind the workforce. Larissa Learning Lab is a home-based daycare in the Chatham neighborhood on Chicago's south side. And owner Bridget Vance is multitasking on a Friday morning. The 57-year-old comforts a toddler who is under the weather while building blocks with two other little ones. That's a tall tower. 
miss that this daycare center serves between 6 to 10 kids on any given weekday from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. Vance is passionate about taking care of children. They're precious and they're a gift from God. And every child deserves to be treated with love, dignity, and respect. But it hasn't been easy over the last 25 years. After all, she runs a business. There's utilities, staff, benefits, taxes to pay. Vance has held side jobs and used credit cards to make ends meet. Well, let's just say monthly a couple of thousand dollars. That's what I take home. You can actually get public assistance with that amount. And I just think that that's a disgrace. She says it's hard to save money, and she has no retirement or pension plan in place. Vance is among more than 15,000 home-based child care providers in Illinois who are part of the state's child care assistance program. That program gives struggling families free or close to free child care. Now these providers are in the middle of contract negotiations with the state over retirement plans, training, and most importantly, pay in the form of the state's rates per child. Vance and others say many providers make close to or less than minimum wage. The child care workforce is really the workforce behind the workforce. That's Bryn Seibert with SEIU Healthcare Illinois, the union that represents Vance and thousands of other home-based child care providers. She says if the child care assistance program is to help struggling parents, it has to do right by the child care professionals who change diapers, read books, and play with preschoolers on a daily basis. A spokesperson for the state says contract talks are pending. Seibert says those talks have been ongoing since last June. And with more and more workers leaving this field for better-paying retail and warehouse jobs, families are struggling to find child care. Our child care workforce is in crisis, and that's something that we're definitely seeing happening now. Mariana Soto Manning is president of Chicago's Erickson Institute, a graduate school in childhood development. She says a lot of home-based child care providers, who are mostly women of color, offer longer hours, closer locations, and also what she calls culturally affirming care. She explains that as... The kinds of interactions and linguistic responsiveness, the kind of food, the kinds of community connections, and most of all, the belief in the brilliance of children of color. Soto Manning says increasing wages and providing benefits for daycare operators would help address inequality. To right wrongs, to make sure that we are answerable for a historical disinvestment, we need to really think about removing barriers to access to childcare that meet families' needs. And she says to help providers like Bridget Vance have a living wage and a nest egg. Esther Yunji Kang, WBEZ News. Coming up on Statewide, we'll talk with an Illinois mayor who's been appointed to the National Board of Amtrak. And thanks for joining us on Statewide. I'm Sean Crawford. Just ahead, we'll talk about the free application for federal student aid. But first, it took three different nominations and nearly four years of legislative holds for various reasons. But the Senate has now confirmed the mayor of Normal to a position on the National Board of Amtrak, the nation's passenger rail service. In an interview with Charlie Schlinker, Chris Coos lays out what he wants to focus on during his time on the board. My priorities are, are multi, I would say. Um, they kind of interconnect. 
safety, rail safety is a, is a key one. On-time performance is key to me. That really, really drives ridership when you have dependable on-time service. And customer experience. Given my background, that's, you know, that's kind of in my blood. Customer experience also is going to make a difference in terms of ridership. Well, customer experience is there's still significant not on time. How should Amtrak address that? Working with the, uh, the Class 1 railroads to uh, reinforce the idea that Amtrak should have priority on the rails. That's something that, that's going to be personal to me, but, um, you know, I'm one person out of seven. I don't want to make promises, you know, this early in the game, I'm brand new, but those are, those are personal issues for me. Okay. So how, how that happens is in conjunction with my fellow board members. So since, since on-time performance and customer experience is important, that sounds like you would probably support the redirect from the existing uh, lines on the Chicago to St. Louis corridor to the Metro lines further east in the Rock Island district uh, to take it out of some of the freight traffic. You know, there, there are uh, a lot of discussions about that with Metra and um, Amtrak in terms of making that more efficient. That is, that is part of my understanding is part of what's happening right now. In 2021, this big, bold 15-year, $60, $70 billion plan for Amtrak service expansion came out. And yet, over the last 50 years since Amtrak's inception, it's been a constant fight to hold the line in the face of some lawmakers' skepticism. How do you know that this 15-year plan is going to remain alive, given the vicissitudes of what happens in Congress? Well, I don't, honestly. Um, we do have IIJA funding allocated for, the, for this project, and the amount of funding that came out of that is actually more dollars for the next five years, 15 years, than Amtrak has had since 1971. There's a lot of opportunity there, but there's also a very heavy lift for Amtrak to be able to hire the people to implement these programs. It's gonna be very challenging for Amtrak to do this. How do you continue to campaign for the people who are on the fence in Congress about this? What do you have to show them? I think showing them uh, the successes that Amtrak's had. Uh, you know, we can always look at the Chicago-St. Louis line, uh, um, the increased ridership that uh, we've gotten on this line um, with uh, higher speeds, um, new modern cars. This all makes a difference for ridership, and, and to show those successes, you know, is going to be part of the job. I'm Charlie Schlenker. We're talking with Mayor Chris Coos of the Town of Normal, who has just been confirmed as a member of the National Board of Amtrak. What are your onboarding activities going to be like? What's the learning curve, and what do you have to pay particular attention to? See that fire hose over there? I'll be drinking from that. Uh, there's a lot to learn. Uh, I've already talked to senior people at Amtrak. We're going to schedule a time whether we do it in Chicago or Washington, where I'll spend a day or two really getting um, uh, updated in terms of what the board has been doing, uh, what the uh, board's out, current board's outlook for Amtrak is. And also I'll be working with Tom Carper, who's been a board member for 16 years and lives in Macomb. Tom will be a, a really important resource to me and has offered to be that uh, in terms of the history of Amtrak. You know, when I get a new council member in the town, 
I tell them it'll be a year before you understand your job because of what's happened before in that. And I think I'm in that same position with Amtrak. It's going to be a while before I really know my job. Amtrak had 2.96 million riders last year. It had uh, about a 25% increase in ridership, but you're still 600,000 or so below pre-pandemic levels. A disproportionate amount of the recovery happened in the Northeast Corridor. So what needs to happen in the Midwest and, and other parts of the country to make up the stagger there? Well, I, I think Amtrak's plan, and, you know, I'm, I'm brand new at this, Charlie, so it's, it's hard for me to speak as an experienced person on this. Some of the new rail corridors that they're looking at, some enhancement on the existing corridors, uh, infrastructure upgrades, and I think the infrastructure upgrades in terms of station improvement and rolling stock is going to make a big difference and, and help to increase ridership. What kind of rolling stock is going to be the quickest to arrive because there was a major shortage of sleeper cars in the last year? Yeah, sleeper cars are going to be harder. If you look at the inventory that Amtrak has, it's old. And there are uh, RFPs uh, going out right now for new sleeper cars for the long-distance routes. But uh, the, the timeline to design those and get those manufactured, there's no American manufacturer for those types of sleeper cars. And, and the cars that uh, Amtrak currently has have been in service for a long time. So it's going to take a while for that to happen. There are proposals to expand on more than 60 corridors over 15 years, but you can't do it all at once. What should get priority? How do you stack those? From my sense of it, and again, I'm talking as a brand new person here. I, you know, I've got, a, I've got a long learning curve to what's happened previously and going forward in terms of the national network. I would say prioritizing the corridors that make the most sense, that, that connect uh, communities or cities that stand to benefit the region economically and uh, in a transportation sense. Uh, those would be the highest priority corridors. And so, so either corridors with huge amounts of people or who uh, connect previously unconnected cities that have a lot of people in it. I, I'd say those are both accurate, yeah. So there's a proposed Peoria to Chicago route, but mm -hmm. Peoria would be at roughly at the end of that, that leg. And Peoria is not a major city like some of the ones that are currently unserved in Ohio. Mm -hmm. Does that argue that Peoria is going to be at the back of the pack? Uh, you know, I'm not going to comment on that at this point. Um, um, Peoria is having strong conversations with uh, FRA and Amtrak about their corridor. So uh, it's under consideration. There's no question of that. Where it falls in terms of priorities, I, I couldn't say. Do you generally support conceptually Peoria's bid? I conceptually support any medium-sized or larger community that could benefit from passenger rail to get in line and, and try to get passenger rail. Uh, I would just say, you know, Amtrak going forward has, has a lot of opportunity to increase ridership, uh, to improve the quality of ridership on their lines. Uh, it's going to be a lot of work, but my experience so far with the Amtrak staff is they're very dedicated professional people, and I think they'll get the job done. That's the mayor of Normal, Chris Coos. He's received a new appointment to the board of Amtrak and is one of three board members the Senate just confirmed for five-year terms. And he talked with Charlie Schlinker. 
A rodent-shaped impression on a sidewalk in Chicago's Roscoe Village neighborhood has gotten a lot of attention. Now the local Chamber of Commerce has started a contest to name the rat hole. Some of the top candidates, Little Stucky, Roscoe the Rodent, and Splatatui. But some experts contend the impression is the splat of a squirrel and not a rat. Seth Magley is director of the Urban Wildlife Institute at the Lincoln Park Zoo. If you think about why an animal would drop from the sky and splat onto concrete, squirrels spend a lot of time up in tree branches, right? Rats don't. Rats spend most of their time scurrying around on the ground. Tourists and locals alike are flocking to the so-called rat hole, which has been there ever since the concrete was poured years ago. The free application for federal student aid, or FAFSA application, underwent significant changes in the past year and was delayed months. Now that the application window is officially open, Peter Medlin talked with financial aid experts to learn more about what students and families can expect. Leanna Davis says this is by far the biggest FAFSA revision she's seen during her decade plus in higher education. She's the executive director of financial aid at Rock Valley College. There are a lot of important changes to this year's form, but the most substantial is that the Department of Education overhauled the formula for how financial aid is calculated. Davis says it used to be based on a student's expected family contribution, or EFC. Now it's called the Student Aid Index. Here's an example of how the old expected family contribution would work. The government would say, we anticipate that you'll spend 11% of your adjusted gross income on medical expenses. And I think now they're just taking a better snapshot of the actual numbers. They're also pulling the information directly from the IRS. That's also a major part of the new FAFSA, whereas previously students might have to manually enter tax information or go through a tricky IRS tax retrieval process. Now most of that information is automatically uploaded into your application. That means for many students, this year's application will have fewer questions and will be quicker to fill out. Sol Jensen is the VP for Enrollment Management, Marketing, and Communications at Northern Illinois University. He says the lowest that the old expected family contribution could go was zero. But with the student aid index, students with substantial financial need can have a negative number. You know, with a population of quite a few students who are lower income and, and have a high financial need, we're, we're still not yet sure how that's going to impact a lot lot of our students. More students are expected to qualify for federal aid with the new FAFSA. Some studies say hundreds of thousands more students will be eligible for federal Pell Grants. That could mean a net increase of over $7 billion in Pell Awards, according to the State Higher Education Executive Officers Association. Jensen says that institutions aren't positive how that will affect the awards a student actually receives. I don't know if any anyone at the federal level has approved a, a massive increase in the Pell budget. He says through the fall and winter, they've had students come to them with questions about the new process, but they haven't always had answers. The institutions have been somewhat blind to the real ins and outs. Now, we, we knew what some of the major changes were going to be, but we didn't necessarily know and still don't necessarily know how that's going to impact other aspects of the awarding process. Both Jensen and Leanna Davis expect the new formula to be a good thing for students in the long run, but Jensen says that some students could see their financial aid go down. There are also a couple of changes about assets for small businesses, assets for family farms, and those will have a bit of a, a negative impact 
um, compared to what it was. Students with more than one family member enrolled in college might see decreases in awards or eligibility too. And there are other positive changes. The application is now available in the 11 most commonly spoken languages in the U.S. as opposed to just English and Spanish. Also, students can now automatically send their FAFSA information to up to 20 colleges instead of 10. For Illinois students, Jensen says to try to submit your FAFSA as soon as possible, preferably in January. We are being told from uh, the state that um, they would like to have everything in by February 1st for students who had previously received MAP grants. And again, I think they are concerned about the, the changes here and not knowing how it's going to impact and, and if we're going to have a, a lot more students eligible where the state may not be able to fund all of those MAP grants as, as we have in the past. And even though the application itself can take less than a half hour to fill out, the process still takes a few days. Davis says that's because dependent students and parents or guardians have to create FSA IDs, which can take a few days to be approved and ready to use. They all have to have their own FSA ID, and they all have to provide consent for the IRS to move their data. That's going to be a, a big change for people that they're not used to seeing. Jensen also has advice on how to approach the process. I would encourage students to do it first because when the students do it, they can put in parent email addresses and then after the student completes it, then it'll email the parent and really all they have to do is click a link and then complete the, the rest of the information. Even if students don't think they'll qualify for aid, Davis says you should still apply because you might be eligible for other opportunities. You don't have to be eligible for federal aid to be eligible for, say, federal work study. And she says if the new system, delays, or waiting rooms have you stressed out, you are not alone. Everyone's in the same boat, right? Like, we're all a little bit behind, which means we're not behind at all. Students have until the end of June to finish the FAFSA, although Davis says to complete it as soon as possible so you have as much time as possible to make decisions. And students wrapping up their FAFSA now probably shouldn't expect to see their award package until the spring. If they have any questions or concerns about their application, students can also reach out to the financial aid office at the colleges they're applying to or the school they currently attend. I'm Peter Medlin. We're out of time for Statewide. Thanks for being with us this week. And join us next time for more reports and conversations from in and around Illinois. You can find us where you get your podcasts through the NPR app and at nprillinois.org. I'm Sean Crawford. Statewide is a production of NPR Illinois with help from other Illinois Public Radio stations. La, la, la.